Well, good morning, everybody. I am Pastor Nathan, and if you guys obviously have been here for a while, you know that, but if you're joining us for the first time, both in the room and online, we wanna say welcome to you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. Real quick, uh, this morning we're gonna be talking about the unseen war. Um, obviously, over the last few days, uh, things have been really tense, obviously, with uh, the world watching as Russia has invaded Ukraine and all that's going on over there. I saw a video yesterday that I just it made me chuckle, right? Because it's like, oh, this is terrible. And it was a, a Russian military vehicle that had ran out of gas on the road. And the guys were standing out in front of it, the Russian troops, and it was a Ukrainian citizen who was filming. And he drove up next to him and he's like, hey guys, what's going on? And they're like, oh, we're out of gas and everything. He's like, oh, you need me to tow you back to Russia? And, you know, but then they had this like, just neat conversation, and it just goes to show that sometimes what's happening at the top level of things doesn't necessarily filter all the way down, but many are worried. Many are worried about the wider application of, of, of this type of thing, and, you know, there, there's many, whether they're just being outright sarcastic or not, are saying, you know, World War III is coming. That's the big clarion call of Gen Z right now on social media, getting ready for World, uh, world War III, and you know, it's, it's difficult. In, in wars of any kind, you know, uh, if you've been a student of wars, you know strategy plays a huge role in many of the countries around the world right now, including ours, the strategy so far has been sanctions, which our president has said publicly, nobody expected those to do anything, you know, and quite honestly, I'm like, well, then why are you wasting time? But that's a different conversation. Uh, meanwhile, Russia is making threats that you know, if anybody, um, any country interferes, that you will have, quote, consequences like the which you have never seen, right? So it's, it's a scary time, it's a stressful time, and so just wanna encourage all of us to be praying for Ukraine, uh, praying for the citizens there, and, and just really the people that are caught in the crossfire, because there's already been casualties, civilian casualties and stuff, and so um, I just wanted to actually pray for that real quick before we get into everything. So if you'll pray with me, Lord, we lift up this situation in Ukraine. God, we just pray for the safety of, of the people there. God, we pray, Lord, that your hand would uh, keep family safe, keep uh, moms and dads safe, keep kids safe. Lord, we pray that the, the aggression from Putin would be um, just thwarted, God, that he would be repelled, Lord, and that um, this would be done. God, we do pray that, that your name would uh, go forth through this, Lord, that, that the hope that is in Jesus Christ would come to those that feel like they have no hope. And that, Lord, you would be glorified in this, God. And so we pray, Lord, for wisdom with our world leaders, presidents, governors, all the people that are, that are around, in, around the world in different countries, God, that they would respond appropriately and decisively, God, that this would be uh, brought to a quick conclusion, Lord, with as less blood, bloodshed as possible. And so, God, we just lift it up to you. We know you could work in the hearts of man. You work in the hearts of, of governments. You, you work. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do your thing, Lord, and do it quickly in Jesus' name. Amen. But why wars? You know, there's uh, different people cite different reasons why people go to conflict. There's rarely one reason, but you know, some people go, oh, well, it's about economic gain or territorial gain. Sometimes it's religion, nationalism, revenge, civil war, revolutionary war. There's all kinds of reasons, but the Bible says this, specifically in James chapter four, verses one and two. It says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. 
And if you look down through history and, and, you know, dig into all the reasons and stuff, a lot of times, most of the time, in my opinion, what's at the very root of war is a selfishness or a pride. One side wants something that the other side has. One side wants their way in opposition to the other side, and conflict ensues. But there's a bigger war that has been taking place since the beginning of time. A war going on around us that you're not really going to read about on the prominent news channels. You're not going to see on the prominent news apps, websites. It's a war that many in the world aren't even aware of, even though it is absolutely real. And unless someone was really able to see it and reveal it to us, I think many of us wouldn't have any idea that it was happening. We would know nothing about it. And it is indeed a war where one side wants what belongs to the other. It's a war where one side is willing to destroy, to keep the other side from having what it has. It's an unseen war happening all around us in the unseen spiritual world. And really, unless God revealed it to us, I don't think we would have any idea that it was taking place. Well, we know that the Bible is a unified collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors over a span of hundreds of years. And despite that, we know it's a unified message. It's, it's harmonious in its message. It's been proven to be true by prophecy, by archaeology, by external verification, its own scientific accuracy long before science caught up to it and said, oh yeah, what the Bible said was true. What the Bible teaches us is ultimately good for life. It gives us instruction on how to find salvation, how to live life. It tells us about God, who God is, what he wants. It tells us about this world, the world we live in. It tells us what's wrong with the world. It tells us how to fix that as we cling to the Lord. But as I said, it also reveals to us the reality of what's going on around us beyond the physical world that we can see with our physical eyes. I think often we refer to this world, we say this is the real world, and to be quite honest, I think the spiritual world around us is the really real world, right? Um, it's existed before our physical world, it'll exist after our physical world, and 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal, and so this last Wednesday, we looked at these verses here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and really looked at it in focusing on the context of how to handle suffering in this life. Not just physical suffering, but, but all manner of suffering by using Jesus as an example, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation. But these verses also make a, a passing mention to an event that happened that I believe happened between the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it tells us that he visited somewhere and proclaimed a message to some group of people. And then, as if Peter's readers already knew all the details about this, he just kind of moved on, wrapped up the section, and kept writing his letter. But his mentioning of this very interesting ministry that Jesus uh, partook of made, makes this passage here very difficult to understand. And it's been, been, been looked at over the years by many different people. But this morning, I want to look at these verses again, verses 18 through 22, in consideration of what I believe Scripture teaches about the unseen world and the unseen war that rages in it. As I said, there are different interpretations on what these verses are referring to specifically. But this morning, I want to tell you what I believe it's saying and why I believe it's saying that. But before we get to that, we're going to lift up praises and worship to the Lord Almighty. 
We're going to worship him for who he is, how he protects us, and how he works in the world, even when really difficult things are taking place, and even when those things taking place around us are beyond our understanding. So let's pray, and we'll worship. God, we thank you, Lord, so much. Lord, we know you are in control of all things. Lord, we also know that you've allowed man to have a free will, to choose its own actions, and sometimes those actions are, are wrong. Sometimes those actions are evil. Sometimes those decisions we make in our own free will lead to wars and lead to hurting other people, God. But Lord, this world isn't all there is, Lord. We know that there is a war raging around us for the souls of men. And so God, this morning as we get into your word to see what your word teaches about this unseen world and this unseen war, Lord, that we would be encouraged, God. That we would be encouraged to, to, to continue to cling to you, God, because you are God Almighty above it all. But Lord, we want to open with just proclaiming the glory of your name, God, worshiping you with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, God. We love you so much, and we thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you're going to do in our lives and in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and I just want to read the whole section real quick and then uh, start digging through it. But it says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of the dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who now has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Father, we just ask that you would bless today, God. Bless your word. May it be an encouragement to all of us, God. And we thank you, Lord, for everything that it teaches us, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there's four things I'd like to point out this morning in this passage. As I said, we dealt with it on Wednesday from a different context, and then we're actually going to be dealing with on Wednesday what it has to say here about baptism. We're going to be talking about baptism and what it is, what, what the Scripture teaches about it, how it applies to our lives, and, and really what that's all about. But this morning, I want to point out four specific things about the unseen world and the unseen war that rages within it. And the first thing is that there is an unseen world that coexists with the world that we can physically see with our eyes. It's populated. Stuff happens there, all right? Uh, verse 18 there, Peter speaks of the flesh and the spirit. He talks about Jesus being put to death in the flesh but being made alive by the spirit or in the spirit, depending on the translation. But the idea there is that there is a physical world and there is a spiritual world, and the Bible teaches about both. There is a world that we can physically see with our eyes, that we can physically interact with, and there's a world that is spiritual, that we can't necessarily see with our eyes or physically interact with. Down in verse 22, Peter goes on to speak of heaven and angels, two other things that we don't generally see with our eyes and can't interact with here on the physical world, but they do exist. And it's as if, it's as if Peter, just, just for a moment in writing this letter, kind of wanted to 
pull back the veil of the real world because he's been talking about suffering and what's going on in, in physical suffering. Um, he wanted to pull back that veil a little bit and just to show us the really real world, what is taking place around us. And there is indeed a real world populated by angelic beings, both good and evil. We call them angels and demons, and they exist, and they exist all around us according to what the Bible teaches. Now, I believe that if God didn't tell us about this world, we would either not know it exists at all, or as weird things happen in life, as man does, we generate weird mythologies and strange um, um, faith systems based upon things that, that simply we don't understand. But in the Bible, out of the 66 books of the Bible, 34 of them speak about angelic beings. 17 of the books in the Old Testament, 17 in the New Testament. The word angel itself appears 103 times in the Old Testament and 165 times in the New Testament. And the Greek word for angel is agalos, which, which basically means messenger, messenger. This word can be, refer, uh, be referring to a human messenger, but in most cases in scripture, that word is used to refer to divine beings or what we call angels. Now, angels populate this unseen world, and you might think, well, what is an angel? One of the best descriptions I could find is a non-corporeal spirit being. <laughs> That's an angel. And you go, what does non-corporeal mean? Okay, that means without a body, without a physical body. That's, that's what that means, okay? Angels are real spirit beings that don't have physical bodies. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? So they're not only messengers, but they're ministers, that they minister to God's people in, 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 in serving God's will and God's plan in the world. But because they don't have a human body, that means they're not restricted to the limitations of a human body, right? So therefore, they're unseen most of the time. Now, on some rare occasions, the Bible does reference where for God's purposes, whatever those may be in those moments, that angels are made visible or are able to assume a human form. But, you know, you get into the Old Testament and sometimes there's descriptions of angels and they're just really fantastic and wheels of eyeballs and, 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 and you know, it's just like, wow, right? Wild looking stuff. But at times, they are able to appear in a human form. We don't know exactly how many angels there are. In Revelation chapter 5, in John's revelation, he was uh, seeing a glimpse of heaven and he said there is countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. All right, I think that's a, 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 an ancient way to say there's a bunch. There's a lot, all right? In Daniel chapter 7 verse 10, he said it this way, having a vision of the heavenly host, and he said there's thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. I mean, just in that scene in Daniel, that's over 100 million in that scene alone. <clears throat> There's a lot. We don't know the exact count. Some theologians have tried to count over the years for different reasons. Um, it's irrelevant. There's, there's, there's a host that is just numerous. It tells us that there's such great number in the, at the birth of Jesus. It said there was a great multitude of the heavenly host singing praises. And so, in this unseen world, it's populated with angels. But also in this unseen world, there is a, an entity named Satan who began as an angel. He is described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. 
In Ezekiel 28, 14, this is a passage that was describing Satan, prophetically describing Satan, as it was describing the power behind the king of Tyre. And it calls him in Ezekiel 28, 14, the anointed guardian cherub, which meant he had a very high, prominent place of authority and importance within the heavenlies. Some scholars think that as the anointed guardian cherub, what it means there is that he was actually the angel that was, that was supposed to be guarding God's throne. That's speculative, but that's what some scholars think. But when you look at these descriptions in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, you see that he was very, very powerful, very beautiful, very wise, very influential, but he sinned. He sinned by a choice of his own free will and fell from his honored position. And it's important to understand that because sometimes people think, why would God create such a wicked, evil person like Satan? Right? They get hung up on that. If God is so loving, why would he create such an evil being like Satan? Well, the answer is, he didn't. He created a very good being, a very noble and beautiful and wise being, but that being had its own free will, and as it's as it had its own free will, it made its own free will choice to rebel against God. Now, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And so the Bible tells us there and other places that there was a moment when Satan, this anointed guardian cherub, rebelled against God and fell. And when he fell, he took a bunch of his buddies with him and they fell too into the rebellion against God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 4 indicates that a third of the angels of heaven fell with him, a third of this uncountable number that we don't know. And they became a highly organized network with actual rankings and titles. We have places like Ephesians 6:12, where it refers to rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of the darkness and spiritual forces. And I believe in a past study, we looked at those things and noted that though they seem to be indications of different rankings of authority within the organization, so to speak. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, right here, he talks about as Jesus was resurrected, he said he was risen up to the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. And so these three words, again, seeming to indicate different ranks of authority and power within this group called angels. And so we see that there's an unseen world that exists that is coexisting with the world we see. It is populated. Stuff happens there. And we likely wouldn't know about it or much about it at all unless it was told to us. And it is revealed to us in God's word. The second thing I want to point out this morning is that not only that there is an unseen world, but there is conflict in this unseen world. Go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says, in which he also went, speaking of Christ, and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient. Now, I believe this is teaching that there is a group of spirits incarcerated in some prison somewhere for doing something. That's what I believe this is speaking of. Ever since the fall of Lucifer, ever since the fall of Satan, there's a conflict that has been happening in this unseen world. An unseen war between the cosmic angelic forces of good and evil. Daniel got a glimpse of this battle once in Daniel chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. There it tells us that Daniel was praying to the Lord for some insight and wisdom. 
And then an angel appeared to him in human form, a messenger appeared to him, and told him, Daniel, from the day you started praying, I was dispatched to, to answer your prayer, to bring the insight and wisdom to you, but it took me 21 days to get here because on the way I got intercepted with a demonic spiritual prince of Persia who I had to fight, and he held me up in battle, so much so that I had to call on Michael, the, the warrior angel, to come and help me so I could get released to come bring you the message. And so Daniel got a glimpse into this unseen war that is going on in this unseen world that we can't physically see with our, 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 our natural eyes. And then in saying that I got caught up by the prince of Persia, it, it seems to indicate by what this angel said that demons are indeed assigned to geographical regions to exert their influence over certain regions. So if the prince of Persia was bad, what about the prince of Hollywood? Or the prince of Las Vegas? Or the prince of the red light district in Sweden? Or what about the prince of Bellflower? One of the first rules of warfare, if you're a student of that, is to know who the enemy is, to know how they work, and to try and figure out what their plans are. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul, teaching about how uh, forgiving one another in the body of Christ helps us to not be taken advantage of by Satan, he says this very interesting phrase. He goes, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Speaking of Satan's schemes. And I hope that is true for all of us. You know, God's word tells us what he's about and what he wants to do. God's word tells us and teaches us how to avoid delivering ourselves into his hands, so to speak. And we have to be students of his word so that we can be prepared for the attacks that'll come against us. If we don't read, if we don't study, then it will be hard-pressed to be ready when those spiritual attacks come. We won't know how to fight back. And so it's important for us to, to be in God's word because it reveals to us what's going on behind the veil, so to speak. And knowing what's to come and knowing how the enemy works, you know, it allows one to, to make plans for counterattack, right? If I know the enemy's coming here, I can make plans to counterattack the enemy. Well, we, don't, aren't, we aren't the only ones that know because in Genesis chapter three, Satan was told God's plan. And he began counterattacking God's plan from the very, very beginning. And so I'm going to run through a bunch of scriptures right now, okay? Um, we'll post them online in the description of the video after. So, so just, just follow along with me rather than try and scribble furiously the notes, okay? And, and if you don't find it or can't get it online, email the office call. I'll get, I'll get the references to you, okay? But I want to jump to these real quick. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan caused the fall of mankind by enticing Adam and Eve to do what they did. And we know the story, right? There was the tree. God said, don't eat of the tree. Satan deceived Eve. And man fell because he disobeyed God. And then in Genesis 3.15, God made this promise to Satan. He said, look, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That was God telling Satan, this is what's going to happen that the offspring of the woman would come and rise up and defeat Satan. In other words, the offspring will have a minor setback, which was death, minor setback for God, 
maybe not for us. But you will have a major defeat, which was his bodily resurrection, defeating the power of death forever. His heel will be affected, your head will be crushed. And so what does Satan do? If I could take out her offspring, I could prevent this from happening. So in Genesis 4, we have the story of Cain killing Abel, and I believe it was Satan that inspired Cain to kill Abel. We read there that Abel was righteous before God. His, his sacrifice, his worship was accepted by God, and Cain was not okay with that, and so he kills Abel. And now Abel, the righteous one, is dead, and Cain is cursed. Aha, they're out of the picture. So I imagine Satan then going, okay, whew, I averted the one. The offspring of the woman, I averted. You know, he, he can't crush my head anymore because he's dead. Because maybe he thought Abel was the one. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm following through with what, what I see in the scripture. God then raises up another line through Seth. And then we get to Genesis chapter 6, where again, I believe Satan had inspired such wickedness on the earth, such corruption on the earth, such violence on the earth, that God decides that the only way to fix it is to wipe out the entire population of the earth in a worldwide flood, except for eight that he kept alive on the ark. And then those eight go on to repopulate the earth. New civilizations, new civilizations come up. And then as you keep reading, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob. You get to Genesis chapter 27, and you find out that, that Jacob, who has the birthright, had a brother named Esau who was very mad at him and wanted to kill him. I again believe that it was Satan-inspired why? Because Jacob was now the one that had the promise. He was in the line of the seed of promise. And Satan was trying to prevent that from happening. Then you get to Exodus chapter 1, and you have the, the Jews who are now in Egypt, and you have Pharaoh who makes this proclamation that all the, the, the Hebrew male children should be killed. Kill all the Hebrew male children. If it's a girl, let her live. But the boys, kill them. Throw them in the Nile, let them drown. Why? Because I think Satan was trying to destroy the Jewish race, which was the seed of the woman, through which the Messiah, the promised seed, the one who would crush his head, would come. So if I could kill them all, problem solved. And then you keep going through Scripture, and you come to passage like 1 Samuel, where you have King Saul wanting to kill King David. And David wasn't king yet, but he wanted to kill him. He hated him. Why? Well, David was a part of the royal line. He was a part of the line where the seed was going to come from. And God promised that, that all his hope would be found in the seed, the offspring of David. And so again, the line's trying to be wiped out. Then you keep reading through the Old Testament. You come to a really crazy story in 2 Kings chapter 11. Same story is told in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, where there was a, a king named Ahaziah. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but King Ahaziah, he dies. And his crazy mom, Athalia, decides, I want to usurp the throne, so I am going to murder all of the royal heirs in Judah. I'm going to kill all of the offspring of the king. Kill them all. And I believe from Satan's perspective, if I wipe out the royal line, David's line ceases. No spring, no offspring. And she tries to kill them all, but one lives, named Joash, who is whisked away and hidden He's hidden until he's seven years old, and then at seven he emerges as king, and the promised line continues. More happens in the Old Testament, but in the sake of time, we'll jump to the New Testament, right? So you get to the New Testament, and you have the Messiah being born, Jesus born in Bethlehem, fulfilling prophecy, and, and, and you guys know the story, right? What happens? 
Herod, kill all the baby boys two, year old, two years old and under in Bethlehem. Kill them all. Why? Again, I think it was a satanic attempt to destroy the seed, to destroy the hope, to do away with the one that would crush his head. But Jesus emerges. Jesus grows up. And then even in the process of that, Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. You remember the story? Hey, you're God. Why don't you jump off the temple here? You know, why don't you just jump off? Because I'm going to misquote your word, right? Blah, blah, blah. The, the Satans won't let you dash your foot against a stone. So, And Jesus says, shut up, dude. Modern translation. Don't misquote the word of God. Don't tempt God, right? Later on, Luke chapter four, Jesus is in a synagogue in Nazareth, and it's in this moment where he proclaims himself to be God's chosen one. He is God's chosen one. It tells us in that story, all the people in the synagogue took him out to the, to the edge of a hill that the city was built on overlooking a cliff, and they wanted to throw him over the cliff and kill him. He got out of that too. But over and over again, over and over again, God moves, Satan counterattacks. God moves, Satan counterattacks. It's an unseen war taking place down through the ages. Satan has always wanted to kill the offspring, any offspring of the Jews, because that's the line. He's always wanted to wipe them out, and if necessary, he would wipe out the entire ethnic race of Jews just to prevent the Messiah from coming so that the promise could not be fulfilled. And again, if you think strategically, if God's plan of redemption for his beloved creation required the existence of a nation, the existence of a people, and the continuance of that nation and that people, well, if he could destroy that nation and destroy those people, ha-ha, I've destroyed God's plan. So there is a coexisting unseen world that is populated. There is conflict in this unseen world. And the third thing I want to point out is that there's convicts in this unseen world. Look again at verse 19 and 20, 1 Peter 3. It says, In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were formerly or who were in the past disobedience. Now, Peter uses a word here that is rendered into the English prison. That word in the Greek literally means a place of incarceration, it doesn't mean a recreational facility. It doesn't mean a place of layover, holding, waiting for something else to happen. It means a place of incarceration, prison. Now, in Revelation chapter 9, there is a place mentioned. And we don't have time to read it, but go read the, the first section of Revelation chapter 9 later if you'd like. There's a place mentioned there that appears, the way it reads, appears to be a place of incarceration, and it's called the abyss. And when you read that section, it appears to be a, a place that exists, already exists, where some really grotesque demons are kept. And you read through Revelation chapter 9, it gives a description of these demons, and they're just horrific, horrific looking. And I think, you know, I can't imagine being John, given this revelation of stuff, and seeing this stuff and going, uh, I don't even know how to describe this, right? But you read it, and it's these really grotesque demons that are let out of this place called the abyss to wreak havoc on the earth during the great tribulation. Now in some translations, instead of the word abyss, it says the bottomless pit. 
So, you know, sometimes if you hear about people referring to the bottomless pit in Revelation, this is the place that's being referred to. But it's a place of incarceration. It's a prison. Revelation says that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the great tribulation, when Christ is here on earth reigning for a thousand years, it says during that thousand years after the great tribulation, Satan and his demons are cast into that place, bound and locked up for a thousand years. And then as you progress through Revelation, it says at the end of the thousand years, they are led out again to tempt mankind, and then there is a final judgment where they, they are then cast into the lake of fire, which I believe is a, a separate place. But Revelation 9, if you go to that, prior to that lake of fire, it appears, it reads that there is a place, that there are some demons that were incarcerated and have been incarcerated in this place called the abyss. And it even says that they had a a leader in verse 11 of Revelation 9 named King Abaddon. And so they were incarcerated in a place that already exists. Now it appears to be a really bad place that even other demons don't want to go to. Because in Luke chapter 8 verse 28, you have the story of Jesus in the region of the Gadarenes. And it says there was a demon-possessed man there. And it says this in Luke 8, 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell down before him and he said in a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. And then if you keep reading, Jesus said, what is your name, demon? And he said, legion. And it goes on to tell us because that man had many demons inside of him. But after they told Jesus their name was legion in Luke 8, 31, it says, and they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. Same exact word that we find in Revelation chapter nine. The same word for the place in Revelation nine where it says there was an angel given a key and it said go to the shaft and unlock the shaft and open it and the shaft that led down to the abyss and the smoke and the demons came out of there. It says he begged them. The demon begged Jesus, please don't send us to the abyss. Instead, it says he begged them, send us into the pigs. (laughs) To me, it appears like the demons wanted to go anywhere but the abyss. And so Jesus said, sure, go into the pigs, and the pigs ran off the cliff and died. But I believe that the prison referred to here in 1 Peter chapter 3 is this abyss. And so go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. So if the prison is the abyss, who are these spirits that are trapped there? Well, I believe there's two sections that that give us an indicator of of who they are. In Jude chapter chapter 1, verse 6, there's only one chapter in Jude, but verse 6, he refers to the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling. And it says, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for judgment on the great day. And he goes on to talk about some other things, but he refers to these particular angels who have been kept. They did something wrong, and they have been kept in in eternal change and deep darkness. In 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, this is what Peter says. If God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, and he goes on to talk about 
you know, God keeping us safe. But, but he makes reference here again to these angels. Now in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, when he says, if God didn't spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell, that word hell there is a Greek word, tartaru, which means to be held in Tartarus, right? And you go, well, what is Tartarus? Tartarus was a place in Greek mythology. They called it Tartarus. It was a Greek word. And this place in Greek mythology was a deep, bottomless abyss used as a dungeon for, wick, for the wicked and as a prison for the titans in Greek mythology. Sounds like a place God already has, right? A deep, bottomless, dark abyss. And so what Peter tells us there is that these angels who sinned were cast into a supernatural realm, a dark dungeon perhaps, a prison, an abyss maybe known for its darkness and bottomlessness. And so these spirits of 1 Peter chapter 3, I believe, are these angels who sinned. These angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling according to Jude, Jude 6. And the prison that they're in is the abyss, the bottomless pit, a place of incarceration that until, um, well, up to this point, even other demons feared to be cast in there. And these angels who sinned were kept in this place, it says, in eternal chains of utter darkness in deep darkness for judgment on a future day. Now, what did they do? What did these demons do that was so bad, above and beyond other demons, that they were kept in this chain, in this, in this place of incarceration, while other demons were still having influence around the world? Well, Peter, both in 1 Peter 3 and 2 Peter verse 4, in talking about these angels, references the time of Noah in both places, right? In 1 Peter 3.19, he goes, they were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah, and then 2 Peter 2, when he talks about these angels who sinned were delivered to prison, and then he says, he goes on to say, and if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, da-da-da-da-da-da. So he ties both of these incidences to the time of Noah. And so you go, well, what happened in the days of Noah? Well, if you go to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says this. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. Then it goes on to talk about what happened in this process. Now, there is disagreement over what that term sons of God means. In the Hebrew, it's bene ha Elohim. And I think, I believe that it is primarily a term, and you see it used primarily as an Old Testament term to refer to angelic beings. Some go, no, it can't mean this for this and this and this and this, but I think that the Bible is pretty clear that it's a, it's a term for angelic beings in the Old Testament. And why would he refer to angels as sons of God? I, I think it's just because they were direct creations of God, right? They were literally direct creations of God himself. And so referring to them as sons of gods, I don't think is an issue. But if you go into the oldest Jewish interpretations of, of these passages and, and really look at some of the earliest church fathers, um, you see that, that historically it was agreed that, that these sons of God here in Genesis 6, 6 were referring to angels or fallen angels as we're going to see. And so if you connect that concept that these sons of God were, were angels and you connect, you know, in the days of Noah, in the time of Noah, and you connect all of that with Jude and 1 Peter and 2 Peter, what I see here is that there were a group of angels that acted so wickedly 
that exercised their own free will and acted so wickedly, overstepped the boundaries of their realm, as Jude says, did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling. They left the spirit realm. They entered into the physical realm in some way. They took wives for themselves. And then as you read through Genesis 6, it says they then had sexual relations with these women and, and these women bore children to them. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, then right after that it says, and the Nephilim have been here ever since, and these were powerful men of old. I don't have time to get into Nephilim and all that stuff and, and all the different things of that. But, but the point was is that these angels did something they were not supposed to do, and it was so heinous and so bad that they were incarcerated because of it. This is my, my opinion on, on what this was all about at this point. Um, I think this was Satan's attempt to corrupt the human genome, right? If I could mess up the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, if I could, if I could mess that up somehow, then, then the one who's gonna crush my head can't be born. And so he tried this, and he tried this, and he tried this, and he tried this. Now, it doesn't indicate any of that particularly in Scripture, but I think if I could corrupt the, the, the human genome and create these these. these spawn of whatever that are just, just corrupted, which incidentally it says the, the days of Noah, there was evil, corruption, all this stuff. Then I think Satan might have been like, hey, if I could end the line there, then I mission accomplished. But people have a problem with that because they go, how could spirit beings have relations with human women, right? That doesn't make sense. Um, I, I honestly can't answer that, answer that definitively I have some thoughts about it. One, um, you have demonic possession. It's something we see in the Bible. It's something that happens today where, where demons actually possess the physical vessel of a human and control them. Um, you see demonic possession all over the Old Testament, or it's very common in the New Testament. There's no reason to think it didn't also happen in the Old Testament. But above and beyond that, it's like, this concept of just because I can't understand all the mechanisms and details of how this happened, that then therefore means it couldn't happen. I mean, if that's gonna be the line of thinking that we carry, well then there's a whole lot of problems we have in our faith, don't we? Can you explain to me the mechanism of how when I utter words, they somehow get to God and he hears them and answers them? Can you explain the mechanism of that? No, we just believe it because the Bible teaches it, right? There is a lot to our faith where, where, where we just believe it because the Bible teaches it. Now, I'm not saying the Bible's teaching this whole genome thing here going on, but I'm saying the concept that, 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 that spiritual beings couldn't have relations with physical beings, oh, I just don't understand the mechanism, therefore it's impossible. I just, I, I think that's a stretch. I think it's within the realm of possibility. However it happened, it resulted in an entire generation of children that were unredeemable. Genesis 6, 5 says that the human mind at that point was nothing but evil all the time. And it was so bad that in 120 years of Noah preaching the gospel while building the ark, not a single person got saved. Not a single person repented. And so thus God had to destroy the entire world. He had to wipe the slate clean, if you will, and start over with Noah and his family. And the angels that were a part of causing this catastrophe, this horrible catastrophe, he locked them up in the abyss. Now perhaps by the time of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is crucified, maybe these demons thought, hey, 
<laughs> God lost. We won. Awesome. They were about to be very shocked. But at the time of the crucifixion, we see that, that these powerful demons that had done something so bad, so heinous, they had to be locked up for all time only to be released during the great tribulation and then locked up again and then done away with in the lake of fire. These powerful demons that, that, that had done all of this, we find out at the crucifixion of Jesus, I believe that this teaching here is that they're, they're still locked up. They're the spirits in prison. They're the spirits in incarceration, locked up with eternal chains and deep darkness. But what that also tells us is that God is so powerful that it doesn't matter what the demons do, what they think they do, what they're gonna try and do. God just goes, you're locked up. And this brings us to the fourth thing I wanted to point out this morning. That one, there is a world. Two, there's, con there's conflict in that world, this unseen world. Three, there's convicts in this unseen world. But then fourth thing is that there is conquest in this unseen world. And that brings us back to 1 Peter 3.19 again. It says that Jesus went and made proclamation to these spirits in prison. And then verse 22, after his resurrection, he'd gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers now subject to him. So Jesus went. He died bodily, was alive in spirit, went and made a proclamation, said something to these spirits in prison. Now, it doesn't say that he only went there. I'm pointing that out real quick. Why didn't Jesus go talk to everybody? Why just the spirits in prison? It doesn't say he didn't. It's just making reference here that he did something very specific, all right? That's completely, all that other is just conjecture. We don't have any specific scripture on all that, but he made proclamation to these specific spirits in prison. So in that context of the big unseen spiritual war covering the beginning to the end of all time, after all the attempts to corrupt the line, to corrupt the seed, to prevent the one from coming, especially their, 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 their heinous attempt to corrupt the human genome. All of that had failed. But here Jesus had died on the cross anyways. And for them, finally, he's gone. He's dead. We won. Waiting for the jailer to come let him out because they won the battle. But they were disappoint, disappointed because God the Son who had successfully been born as a human, who successfully lived a perfect human life, had now died all humans' death on the cross. For God, just a minor setback. And in doing that, he did away with the sting of death. Death didn't matter now because eternal life was available to those who would receive that free gift. And in doing so, he crushed Satan's head, defeating him and his hold over humanity forever. So I believe his proclamation, it doesn't tell us what it is here, okay, so this is just conjecture on my part, but I believe he went to those fallen angels, these particular angels that were so bad they had to be locked up and set aside all the way until final judgment. I believe he went down to them and just said, hey, war's over, dudes. I won. Everything you tried and your buddies tried and, and your master has tried didn't work. Yeah, I died on the cross, but look, I am alive. I am here, and in a couple days, I'm gonna bodily resurrect and ascend to heaven at the right hand of my Father, where you will be subject to me for all time. 
I've secured the salvation of my creation. I've satisfied the justice of my father. I've purchased the title deed of creation back, and there is nothing you can do about it. Conjecture? That's what I think he said, (laughs) or something along those lines. So I want to close this morning with uh, first a scary thought and, and then a good thought, okay? These demons that I believe are incarcerated in the abyss will one day be released. I believe that according to Revelation chapter 9. I believe that one day during the tribulation, the great tribulation, which I don't believe the church will be here for because we will have been raptured at that point, the abyss will be opened. These really horrible, worst of the worst, you know, the criminals that wear the orange jumpsuit rather than the white jumpsuit demons are going to be let loose. They're going to wreak havoc on the earth. And Jesus says of the end times, just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. These demons will be released for a short time during the Great Tribulation before they get reincarcerated with the devil for a thousand years and then finally judged in the lake of fire. Super encouraging, right? Wow, thanks, Nathan. That's, woo, leave us with that. But this is the good part. When it comes to the unseen war that is taking place in this unseen world, the Bible tells us that a third of the angels fell. A third of those angels are now demons who hate you and who are gunning for you and who are doing everything under the authority of, of Satan. He couldn't stop the chosen one from coming, so now his mission and his job and his purpose and plan is to destroy those who would dare call out to Jesus and to prevent those who haven't yet from ever doing so because they gain salvation and eternal life when they do. But if a third fell, guess what? That means two-thirds didn't. That means that Satan is way outnumbered by the good guys. He is way outnumbered by the good guys. And so instead of hearing a message like this and getting caught up in, oh my gosh, demons. There's demons out there and there's demons everywhere and you know, instead of having that consume your focus all the time, every time something bad happens, the demons are after me and the demons are trying to get me and, you know, Pastor Nathan said there's this unseen war and I'm so terrified and afraid now and, you know, oh, we ran out of milk, demons. I didn't get my parking spot, demons, you know. Instead of getting caught up in all of that, even though it's real, it's there. How about we rest in the two-thirds that are on our side? But more than that, how about we rest in the fact that Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit lives within us and greater that, that is he that is in me than is he than he that is in this world. Because even if 100% of the demons fell and sided with Satan, it is nothing to the power of Almighty God who if you are a believer and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ is your Father who cares for you and works to protect you. And yes, allows us to go through suffering, but he always uses it to grow us, to teach us, to mold us, and to shape us, and to accomplish his will. Christian, you are on the winning team, and you have stepped out of darkness into the light. Yes, God has revealed to us the unseen spiritual world that exists around us. I think he's revealed to us the unseen war that operates around us but he has also revealed to us in his word our future and our hope so that knowing despite what's happening around us, 
We know our future and hope, and in that we can find peace and we can find rest in Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, your word is a, a mine of riches that is infinitely deep. And God, even topics like this, Lord, who's in the prison, who are they, Lord, ultimately they don't have anything to do with our salvation. But God, you, you put these things in your word for a purpose, and so we study. We, we endeavor to learn and understand what, what you are saying as you inspired the authors of these 66 books to write down what they wrote down, Lord. And every single piece of your word, Lord, no matter how we might feel it's applicable in this moment or not applicable in that moment, every single piece of it is an encouragement to us about who you are, what you're doing, what you've done, and what you're going to do in our lives as your children. And so, God, we just thank you for it. Lord, we believe that there's a spiritual realm around us. We believe there are angels and demons there. Lord, your word tells us. Lord, we believe that these demons that exist hate us and try to prevent you from doing what, what you came to do, Lord, in, in being the sacrifice, the, the very thing that, that saved all of mankind. But Lord, they were unsuccessful. And now, Lord, they work and endeavor to just prevent us from, from following you. But Lord, they fail over and over because people give their lives to you left and right all the time. And then God, if they can't keep us from getting saved, we know they work overtime to just prevent us from serving you, prevent us from, from, from being obedient to you, to tempt us with things, Lord. And God, even in that, we know your word tells us that as we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so God, help us. God, we know the Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers. And so we ask, Lord, that you would just teach, teach us to not worry to not let fear direct us, but to know, God, that we have you dwelling within us and that as we cling to you and stay close to you, God, that you will protect us. You will even take us through difficult times and take us through sufferings for your glory. And may we find peace in that. Lord, we know Satan is powerful, but he's an impotent nothing compared to you, God. So, Lord, we have nothing to fear. Help us to trust in you in all things to rest in you in all things, to find that peace and joy you have for us in all things, Lord, even if there is a war raging around us. God, we love you so much, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Let's worship.